I'm going to talk this morning about the basis for hearing God. And before I get to the basis or the reasons for hearing God, there's three key ones that I want to touch on today. Uh, I, want to, I want to step back and I have to introduce a different topic for a little bit because I believe that even when we give the reasons for it, there's, there's some wrong thinking in us that causes us not to go to him in prayer and receive back from him and hear from him. And I'm gonna, we're, So we're going to lay the foundation on that first and then we're going to go through uh, the three bases or reasons for hearing God that we need to have. So let's bow for a word of prayer. And uh, then we'll get started. And as you do, why don't you just turn your palms upward in a sign of humility to God. Did you know that Jesus tells us that we're to come to the Father in a spirit of humility? And he says those who come with humble hearts are the ones who receive. Those who come with proud hearts, they don't hear from God. They don't, they don't understand the things of God. And so we do that in a posture of humility. Father, we come to you. Because Jesus taught us we could come to you as a father. And we say, we had such an amazing time in worship. That was such a wonderful time. And as we thanked you, as we praised you, as we exalted your name, we sensed and many of us heard your voice speaking back to us. And something happened in our spirit that we're going to talk about in a few minutes and uh, our spirits and our souls were quickened. Our inner man, man was quickened and strengthened and encouraged and blessed. And uh, we meant what we sang. And we tell you that we love you. We ask you now, Father, that by your spirit you would speak to us and encourage us into a deeper and closer relationship with you. And we thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed by saying, amen. I told you that I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to go back now and uh, talk about a couple of these, uh, these other, uh, this, I, I want to get to something here before we get to these three bases. The whole point of the Bible, and many people are wondering, what is the point of the Bible? What is the Bible trying to say? What, what is it trying to get at? Some people think it is all about the cross. It is not all about the cross. The cross is an important piece of it. But that's not the point. The point that God is getting, the unifying hold of this book, of God's word, written word, is that God wants to be with us. And he wants us to have a with God kind of life. That's the whole point. The cross makes it possible for that but the whole point of the Bible isn't the cross. The whole point of the Bible is God working in such a way so that we can have a with God kind of life. God wants to be with us. He wants a relationship with us. And we see it right from the beginning. We, see, we can see it in the sweep of history from Genesis through Revelation. When, when people look at the woeful path of human history, they may object, where is God? Genesis answers with, where is man? He is away from God, and that is his free choice. Where are you, Adam? God called. God hadn't left. It was man who had left God, and that's the problem. Up to that point, God would show up in the garden to visit with them in the cool of the day. He'd be walking with them. They were on friendly terms. But after the fall, man, we see man hiding and away from God. Still, 
God continued to come around. He came around to Cain. He said, Cain, where's your brother? His, his project was to woo them back to himself. In Genesis 5, it says Enoch walked with God. In Genesis 6, uh, Genesis 6 tells us that Noah found favor with the Lord and walked with him. Genesis 11 begins the story uh, of Abraham. In J James chapter 2, James says, it calls Abraham a friend of God. The first person in the Bible of whom this is said. God had finally found a man through whom he could also establish not just a presence with him as Abraham, but now he had found somebody, and he said, I know, I know that Abraham is, go is going to raise his family right. Remember where he said that? He, now he found a place to establish a presence with a family. And then from that, his whole goal and his covenant was to, to establish a presence with a nation. And by sticking the nation on a certain promised piece of land to establish a broader presence of God in the world. His whole plan was to re-establish his presence and walk with man again the way it had happened in, uh, in the beginning. It, it took a long time. It had taken a long time to get to that point. But that's the only way you can have love and friendship. You can't force it. You can't, you can't force a friendship. You can't force a love relationship. You can't demand it. You can't rush it, not even God. If you rush it, if you demand it, if you force it, then we're only robots, not humans. God wanted friends. And when Abraham's family grew into a nation, they had no place to be. So God promised them a land, as I said, and the story of the Exodus took place to establish God's broader presence. As Mo Moses led them through the barren desert, uh, God went with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God directed the construction of a tabernacle to live with them. And even when they rejected him, demanding instead a king like the surrounding nations, he didn't simply cast them off like he, he could have. Instead, he said, okay, then I'll draw them, uh, then I'll draw them uh, to myself through the monarchy, and I'll use the monarchy to do it. Always he's wooing, always he's drawing, trying to establish a relationship, trying to be with man, trying to draw man back to be with him. He didn't give up. He, he was still wooing them. He still wanted to be with them. And King David under the monarchy now, even testified to that. He said, in your, what's the word? In, let's say that again. You're going to have to help me through the remainder of the message, so you may as well stay with me. In your, what? Presence, there is fullness of joy. In response to continual rebellion, God sent them into Babylonian exile. And lo and behold, who's there? God. He's still trying to be with them, even when he sends them in exile. When Daniel's friends were thrown into the fire, there's one like the Son of Man walking, what? With them in the furnace, as Chris talked about last weekend. God wasn't far away in some distant heaven. That's not where he was. He was with them. And when it was time to restore them back to the land, they had no government to lead. Didn't matter. God was with them. He tapped Cyrus to the Medes and Persians. He said, they don't have government, you send them back. And so Cyrus sends them back. And they learned, we don't even have to have a government if God is with us. 
He was even with them, though his Shekinah glory, which is the visible presence of God, which was in the, in the Solomonic temple, in Solomon's first temple, that great, uh, beautiful structure that had been built and had now been destroyed. And now they built a second temple, and the Shekinah glory never came back. The visible presence of God never came back, but it didn't matter. God had already hinted through the prophet Isaiah, and he had come to them in, a, in another sort of presence through the prophets. But he had already hinted through Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name, what's the word? His name will be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means what? God with us. Hundreds of years later, John the Baptist arrived on the scene announcing, Repent, for the kingdom of God has drawn near. Jesus, the new Shekinah glory or visible presence of God, became the embodiment of a with God kind of life. Now we could put a face to God. God is Jesus. That's who he is. He's like Jesus. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus assured the disciples, I am, what's the phrase? With you. I am what? Say it again. With you always to the end of the age. At the, at the Feast of Pentecost, many people came from the nations around. band of 120 people were praying in Jerusalem for the promised Spirit. And on that day of Pentecost, Jesus poured out the Spirit on all 120 of them. And when the thousands of Pentecost pilgrims heard Peter's message, they too believed and were similarly filled with the presence of God through the Spirit. He was with them. And when they, these people, these thousands of people that had gathered for the day of Pentecost, when they spread, when, when they went, returned to their homes in the, in the various countries, they didn't take back a religion with them. They took God back with them. He was spreading his presence in the world. And when we get to the last book of Revelation, guess what we find? We've come full circle. The history of mankind began when God was with man in the garden. This age ends when God is once again with man in the fullest sense. In fact, it talks in Revelation 22 about the tree of life. The same one that was in the book of Genesis is found in, on the new heavens and the new earth that I uh, spoke about uh, some weeks back. And, and God's presence with man is fully reestablished the way it was. That was his goal. That was his project, to be with us. Revelation 21, verse 3, he says, He will dwell, what's it? With them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. The message of the Bible is, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. But always this haunting question, will you be with me? Will you be with me. See, you see, there's a lot of Christians in, in, in Western society that want Jesus. You know, they're just glad he died on the cross so they don't have to go to hell. That wasn't the point. The whole point was that God wanted to be with them. He wanted, and he wanted them to be with him. That was the whole point. That's why Jesus died. That's where that peace fits in. Now, here's why the idea of God being with us just doesn't somehow grab us in the West. We're confused about where God actually is. 
And in large measure, this confusion has come about by poor translations, and poor translations have, have come because of the, the influence of Greek thinking on our minds, not Hebraic thinking. And I'll show it to you. In Acts chapter 11, for example, it says, and this is the story of Peter as he's praying at noon in this, uh, and, and the sheet with the uh, unclean animals comes down, and he has this vision, right? I was in the city of Joppa praying, this is Peter, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the, and what's the word? Go ahead, you can say it out loud. Sky. Uranu is the Greek word behind it. And it came right down to me, and when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the, what's the word? Air. Air. Same word, Uranu. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from, what's the word? So here we got it. Sky, air, and heaven, all translated from the exact same word, uranu. The, uh, in English, air is, is about the atmosphere around us. Sky speaks more of limit, as in sky is a limit. And heaven is about a place that we talk about going to one day, although we now know that heaven's going to be on earth. That's exactly right. Restored earth. And that has created a huge problem for modern Christians. They view God as speaking to them from far away. He's not really here. He's distant. He's remote. A consistent translation would have been that God spoke to Peter from the surrounding air around him where the birds of the air fly. And this is how the he Hebrew Christians would have understood it. When God spoke to Moses on Sinai, where did he speak from? Let's take a look. It says in Deuteronomy 4, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the what? Out of the what? Help me. Midst of the fire. Was the, myth, was the fire way out there in heaven? No, it was right here. And God's voice came right from there. <coughs> Excuse me. He spoke right from the air around. It, he was right there. And see how God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. In number, uh, Numbers chapter 7, it says, When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the Ark of Testimony. God spoke from the air between the cherubim, just inches above the ark. That's where he was. Now, see how Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple in Second Chronicles. I'm showing you how Hebrew Christians thought. It's different than the way Greek Christians thought. But Hebrew Christians, their, their belief systems were rooted in Old Testament thinking. They thought different. Look how Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. He said, I've built you an exalted house. That was the temple he was talking about, and he's praying. He's praying to God in front of all the people. A place for you to dwell forever. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven. That's the one that we often think about, this place that's far away. So there's the heavens in between and the highest heavens. Cannot contain you how much less this house that I've built. And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray, pray toward this place and listen from heaven, now your dwelling place. Now, where did God dwell? As you look at this passage, 
as you look at it on the screens, where did God dwell? Well, one of the things that it says there is he is in the temple. He said, I made a place for you to dwell in forever. He, he was going to dwell in the, in the temple. But it also says he lived in the lower heavens, the air and atmosphere, and he dwells in the highest heaven. None, none alone can contain God, not even the highest heavens. Did you get that? God does not, does he dwell in the highest heaven, yes or no? Yes, he does dwell in the highest heaven. But he does not just dwell in the highest heaven. The highest heaven cannot even contain him. Neither can the heavens, the atmosphere, and the air around us. And neither can, could the temple. None of them could. He is up there in the highest heaven, but he's also in the air and atmosphere around, and even in the house temple built for him. He was near. That was the point. Look how Isaiah affirmed this. He said, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my what? Footstool. God is in heaven, sitting on his throne, and his feet are resting on our, on our earth. That's what he's saying. He's everywhere. That's how Isaiah put it in a very poetic way. <coughs> Excuse me. He's there in the highest heaven, and he's right here. It's interesting. We were singing a song earlier, and I, I, I couldn't believe we were singing. In fact, I sat down in the first service, and I wrote, I, I wrote a note because it, it referred to the very story I'm going to tell. But we sang, the God of angel armies is always by my side. Remember that? You know what? He actually means that. Did you mean it when you were singing? The God of angel armies is always at my side. He's not just way up there. He is right here at your side. Let me uh, show you how Elisha understood this, how the Old Testament thinkers thought of it. The king of Aram was at war with the king of Israel. Elisha always knew where Aram, uh, where Aram would attack. And so he warned the king of Israel about this continually. And the king of Aram found out about this. He was very upset. And he found out where Elisha was living in a certain city. And he sent his armies there and encircled the city. And in the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up and he says, Alas, master, what shall we do? And Elisha replied that those who were with them were more than those who were against. Remember that? Then he prayed for God to open his servant's eyes, and in 2 Kings 6, verse 17, look what it says. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, what? The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They were everywhere. He just could not see them. They were in another dimension, but they were there. You cannot see yourself. You can see your body, but your personhood, you cannot see it. But would you deny that it's there? True? You know I'm here. I have a certain personality, characteristics, consciousness, traits. But if you opened me up, you would not find me. Now, it may sound kind of funny, but did you know Soviet scientists actually did that? They opened up the brains of some of their leaders, hoping to find them there. Uh, it was a long time ago, but I read about it. God is in the highest heavens, but he is literally here as well. Matthew, written for Jewish believers, also is clear about this. Unfortunately, the translators didn't get this. And that's okay. We're, they're fallible humans, and we're fallible humans. I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying. 
They didn't get it, they didn't get it right. For example, John the Baptist came preaching. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, Repent for the kingdom of what? Heaven is at hand. Now, this phrase, kingdom of ha heaven, is actually in the plural. It's kingdom of heavens. Not kingdoms of heaven, but kingdom of heavens. They translated it, however, as singular. I, in fact, I checked all 32 occurrences in the book of Matthew. Every one of them in the Greek is in the, in the plural, and every one of them the translators translated as singular. And so it gives us this idea. See, that's that Greek thinking again. It gives us this picture and thinking of, uh, you know, matter is down here, and then there's this spiritual kind of heaven way out there, a place where God dwells. It's not true. He's in, he inhabits the heavens around us. And that makes all the difference in the world. God's kingdom is not just in the highest heaven, as Solomon put it. It is wherever he is at work. That's where the kingdom of heaven is. And God is at work everywhere. Amen? He is at work everywhere. The kingdom of God, heaven is everywhere. God is not remote. He is not distant. He is with us now, right now. Turn to someone next to you and say, God, God is right here, right now. Go ahead, do that. Right now. You know, yesterday morning, I got up real early, went out on my deck, and uh, had a cup of coffee, and I sat down, took my Bible out, and before I began to read it, and he spoke to me as I was reading as well, but before I, before I did, I did this, and I, and I encourage you to do this. I said, God, you are right here, right now. And immediately, I heard this response in my thoughts. And I, that's, that's something else I'm going to talk about, the still small voice, but not today. And immediately, I heard this phrase, yes, I am. And when I heard that, there, honestly, this rapturous joy just filled me, and his presence was there. I came alive. Something happened, and I was awake on my deck. Yes, I am, he said. You're near. You're here right now. Yes, I am. And he spoke to me. Many of you may have been hearing him uh, as we were worshiping this morning. In fact, uh, and I know many of you do, because... You, I, I often hear, in, when there's pauses in the music or something, I often hear people whispering. And they're not whispering to each other, they're whispering to him. And then they're hearing him, and they're whispering back to him. That's exactly how a life lived with God is meant to be. That's the correct way to do it. That's very good. I commend you on that. Now, let me talk about the basis for hearing God. Uh, and I wanted to just get this foundation right because people are not, uh, they, they don't go to him because they don't think he's here. But now I want to talk about why we need to hear him. First of all, in, in three dimensions, the basis. The first one is as our king and lord, he is near as our king and lord. God is fully establishing his kingdom on earth. Matthew chapter 12 says, but if it is by the Spirit of God, Jesus said this, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He said, it's here. And then he said, and it's almost, it's kind of confusing, because then in Luke chapter 10, he said, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near, or is coming. Which one is it? It's both. It's both. 
His kingdom has come and it is coming. He's established a beachhead and it's spreading. Uh, but there's a riot in the streets. God is here. There's still a bunch of rebels out there who are being given a chance to switch sides. And that's what you and I were, rebels. But we switch sides. And, and the ba this battle is not being fought through force, but persuasion. The time to switch sides, or allegiances, will soon be done. And then the rebellion will finally be squelched by the king through force, and Jesus will be in full control of every corner of the kingdom. And everyone who is on the new heaven and new earth here will be fully submitted to his kingship and rulership. Now, here's the thing about battles and kingdoms. They require constant communication. Wouldn't you agree? And God calls us to serve him now, to help in this advancement of the kingdom. There's an enemy, the devil, and he's trying to thwart God's plans. And you know what I find here at Southland? The more we get into, the more areas that we minister in, the more we get attacked. <clears throat> and do you know what I notice? We don't have the strategies for knowing how to get through it. But God does, and he has strategies that, that help us know uh, what we're supposed to do. Fighting against the enemy, the devil, requires strategies and plans and much communication. David, for example, in the Old Testament was part of establishing God's kingdom through the sword. And for that, he needed two-way communication with the Lord, or king, his king. In 2 Samuel 5, for example, verse 19, it says, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up. Go straight forward. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Well, eventually the Philistines returned. So, you know what David did? You'd think he'd say, Well, this is how we did it the first time. May as well do it the same, same way the second time. No. He knew that this was a battle in the kingdoms. He said to God, he said, how do you want me to do it this time? They were coming up the exact same route. And in verse 23, David inquired of the Lord, and uh, God said, you shall not go up. Don't go straight up. Go around to the rear. Come against them opposite the balsam trees. Take a look at how this worked in the New Testament. Paul, the apostle, was part of establishing God's kingdom, not through a sword, but persuasion. And uh, for that, he needed two-way communication with the Lord as well. And uh, I refer back to Acts 16, a passage that I like because it's rife with many uh, lessons. But this is what it says. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. What were they? They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? And then when they came up to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, what? Help me, everybody. He did not allow them. How, how did he not allow them? Did he put up a roadblock? No, he spoke to them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, this was a vision, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had what? Called us to preach the gospel to them. Look at the strategies that are taking place when you're serving God in his kingdom as king. He, the king is here 
advancing his kingdom and he's using you and I, but he expects us to, and we need to be able to hear his words if we're going to be able to do it. I can't believe that so many people go into ministry and don't ask God. Whether you're, taking, whether you're ministering with little kids, whether you're doing signing, whether you're doing, uh, leading a church, it doesn't matter what kind of ministry, whether your ministry is in business. What does God want to do with your business for advancing the kingdom? What does he want you to do with your employees? What does he want you to do with your fellow employees in the workplace? What does he want you to do? He's your king, and you need to ask, and he will tell you. Amen? Oh, I need a heartier amen than that. <laughs> amen. That's how it works. That's how it works. He's not remote. He's right here with us, and he'll tell us. He whispers and tells us. God continually speaks to me about strategies he wants me to implement for advancing the kingdom here through Southland. Who would have come up with a plan we see unfolding through Southland today? Where a ministry just keeps spreading to all kinds of different people here in this region, but now through the country and in other parts of the world. Thousands of pastors being impacted by, by this. We could have never, out of Steinbeck? It may as well be Nazareth. And nothing good comes out of there. Amen? But apparently it does. We have to listen. Secondly, as our Father, He is near as our Father, and we need to hear Him. Look at the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, literally in the heavens again, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this time He uses the singular differentiating between the two. His will is in, uh, up there but in, where his throne is, but where his feet are, as Isaiah put it. The, it's the heavens. See the distinction Jesus made there. And look what God is referred to. He's referred to as our what? As our what? Our Father. And Jesus also calls us sons, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. John called us children of, of God. That's familial. You know what the single greatest problem that dads have, a lot of dads have, not you, but in the first service. All the dads in the first service. Dads can be distant and they don't communicate well. Some. They don't talk. They grunt. And that's the whole point. Your Father, your Heavenly Father, who is in the atmosphere around you, isn't distant at all. Neither is He silent. And when you talk to Him, He happily responds. And He also takes the initiative to speak, if you'll take the time to stop and listen. As I was, uh, as I was on the deck yesterday morning, then I began my reading, and, and I picked up where I'd left off, and I was in Romans chapter 8, and I got to the part where it said, uh, the Spirit Himself testifies, that means He speaks, Right? Spirit speaks. Would you agree with that? With our spirit that we are God's children. And I was pondering that. You know how assurance of salvation comes? A lot of people say, well, uh, my kid's struggling with assurance of salvation. My teen is, my spouse is, whatever. Do you know uh, many years ago in her, uh, when Fran was in her 20s, she struggled for several years about assurance of self salvation. And she would come to me and I was going to Bible college, so I took out all the proof texts. 
You know, the first John 5 kind. By this you will know that you are children of God. And, and I, I just took her to a whole bunch and I started saying, see, God says you're saved because you prayed this little prayer and you did that. And you know what? It didn't do any good to her. Didn't do her any good. And then one day I had an idea and I gave her a piece of advice. I, I told her to take it to God. I didn't realize then just how theologically sound that was. And uh, she began to spend time alone with God, and when she got to Psalm 87, she read in verse 4, this one was born there. And when she read that, and that, that's not a passage about you know, having assurance of salvation, those words just came out and just grabbed her on the inside, and her life on the inside, and just grabbed her. And she never doubted it again. She never, never brings it up, never talks about it. She just knows. She's one of his. Isn't that what a good father does? He assures his children. 1 John 1, 3 says, And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You cannot have a relationship and fellowship with God if he is not near and if he doesn't speak. Amen? I mean, he delights in the things you're doing. He's a father. This is, you know, in the other one, we're talking about direction of how you move the kingdom. This one, we're talking about a relationship. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are lonely. And there's a lot of people that are bored, whether they're teens. Teens are bored. In fact, you know what boredom means? Emptiness. That's where boredom comes from, emptiness. We got more boredom today than we've ever had before. People are trying to fill it with all kinds of electronic gadgets. That doesn't solve boredom. A relationship with the Heavenly Father does that. And we have a lot of lonely people and people, even Christians, and people that are aging. And you know why? Because they don't take advantage of the relationship they can have with Jesus and with their Heavenly Father. That would take care of it, wouldn't it? Amen? I think so. I mean, he, he wants to talk to you about everything. One day, he talked to me about flying. I said, Lord, why do you, you give me that kind of desire? I mean, I can't, I can't fly anyway. You, I mean, then you call me out of it, and I go into vocational ministry. So why why do you do that? He said, I made you to enjoy it. And then he turned around and he, and he spoke to somebody else and said, I want you to let him fly the airplane. I don't have money for that. I can't afford the gas even. And uh, he said, I made you like that. And when you're out there, I'm thrilled when you are looking at what I've made and when it excites you. And it makes me, I delight in that. And you can talk, him, you can talk to him about hobbies. Can you believe it? You can have a relationship with a father. Maybe you didn't have a relationship with your father, but you can have a relationship with your heavenly father. Amen? Oh, yeah. You don't have to know loneliness anymore and emptiness anymore. Relationship is important. And then finally, as our life, not only as our king and, uh, uh, and lord, not only as our father, but also as our life, he is near as our life. The Bible uses two words for which, uh, which are both translated as life. Bios, from which we get the word biology. It's what, all matter, what we're made up of. And zoe. That's that inner personality, consciousness that I was talking about uh, before. 
And uh, Zoe life is that conscious spiritual personality which you can't see, but it's there. It's the real you. And humans have the capacity to draw on God, much like a plant has the ability to draw on light in order to flourish. You know, plant eats dirt and draws on light and grows, right? And God has given uh, our Zoe life, not just our physical life, and we know that about our physical life, but our Zoe life, that's the inner part of us that's just given to human, uh, human beings. And by the way, Zoe life is what he talks about in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, now this is eternal life, Zoe. That's what he's talking about. This is an eternal quality of living, your, your inner being, that you may know him. And he made us that way. John 15, 5 says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. But what exactly is this food that we need from God to thrive? Well, the devil, uh, we, we, we get a hint of it when the devil came to Jesus and said to him, you haven't eaten in a long time, you better eat. Command these stones to turn into bread. And what did Jesus say? You're wrong. I have been eating. I've been feeding on God's words. You know what gives your inner being, your personality, your consciousness, that spirit part, who you are, you know what changes it and gives life to some and some, uh, they seem to just be dying? It's whether they're feeding the Zoe life or not. That's it. I mean, if you didn't eat, <clears throat> you can tell that I do. If you didn't eat, you wouldn't look the way I do. And when your spirit life, the Zoe life, does not feed on God's words, life-giving words, then it shrivels up. And that's the difference between some. Matthew 4, uh, 4 says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every what? Word. He meant what he said. He's talking about, yes, you need physical food for your physical body, but you need God's words spoken into you for the Zoe life, that spiritual part of you, the, 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 um, the conscious part of you, the who you are part of you to live. And when you don't, it dies. How can Jesus' words possibly give us life, never mind life to the full? How did, I want to ask you this question. How did God create the world? A word. That's exactly right. And at the end of time, he will overcome the nations with a word. <clears throat> I wish I could do that. I've never been able to overcome an enemy with a word. They don't, just don't fall down and die. <laughs> Yours neither, no? But Jesus can do that. Now those are different kinds of words than the ones you and I use. We use words to express thoughts and ideas and wishes, but Jesus' words actually carry out those thoughts and wishes, bringing life. Wow! That's amazing. His words actually accomplish what he attended, intended. In Isaiah 55 it says, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire. And what's the next word? And achieve the purpose for which I sent it. When I send out a word, it does not necessarily accomplish what I want it to do. 
It expresses my wishes and desires and intents, but in itself it does not have that power. In some mysterious way, Jesus abides in the very words that proceed from him so that they actually accomplish and achieve what he actually speaks, and that is amazing. Follow me on this. And if his words enter us, then as we speak them, they too bring life and achieve what God intends them to achieve. Uh, to achieve. No wonder Jesus was called the Word. And guess what Jesus, the Word, is doing right now? It says in Hebrews, the Son is the radiance, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustained sustaining all things by his powerful word. The only reason this whole planet and this whole universe uh, and this, whole set, this, this cosmos, this whole thing is going is because he sustains it with a word. That's it. He stops saying the word or he says a different word and it does not get, gets, uh, and it's not sustained anymore. No matter what the media or the governments of the world say. He sustains it. By a word. That's amazing. And this makes all the difference in the world to us. Remember when Jesus was asleep in a boat with the disciples as the storm raged around him? He's sleeping. <clears throat> and they're losing it. The disciples in a panic woke him up and asked, Master, don't you care that we perish? What did he do? He calmly got up. And with a word, he rebuked the wind and waves. And it was completely calm. That is incredible. Would you agree? That is incredible. On another occasion, using a word, he offered peace to the souls, or inner man, or the disciples, too. John 14 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I, what? Give you. I do not give to you as the world does. I do not let your hearts be troubled, and don't be afraid. He desires to rebuke the raging seas and bring peace with a word to your soul, your inner man. Too. He can do that. You say, hey, I get so many circumstances. My health and, and my marriage and my family and my job and my, everything's going apart. And, and inside your turmoil, you can't sleep at night. You can't nothing. You know what you need? You need to get alone with God and let him be your life. Your inner life, your zoe life is shriveling up. And it cannot stand the pressures from the outside. But he can give you life. That same creative word can put courage and peace into your life, even if the circumstances continue to rage seemingly out of control around you. And that's why. You know what I've noticed? Sometimes I see people, they got problems. Oh, my word. Problems over problems over problems. And they walk around with a big smile. I'm not talking about the fake pasted on thing. I'm talking about where they exude the smile out of the inner being. And I go, I don't get it. Uh, I mean, uh, and then I see somebody else, and they just barely stub their toe. And they are completely out of control. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? In fact, sometimes the two meet, and it's embarrassing watching it. Because the one is coming apart at the seams over nothing, while the other one, who's carrying Ten times that is completely calm. And the, the whole difference is one has a shriveled Zoe life. It's, 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 it's just dying. And the other one is fat and full. 
<gasps> healthy. And it's all because one gets word and the other one doesn't. The thing is, God tells us we need to feed on him. Paul had just been arrested in Jerusalem and in the process had been almost torn into pieces by a violent mob. Wouldn't that put fear into you? Oh, it would into me. See what Jesus does. Jesus, the word, does. Following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take what? Do you think he had courage after that? <laughs> Absolutely. When Jesus' creative word says, Take courage, when he says, Peace be still, you got peace, my brother and sister. When he says, Take courage, you got courage, brother and sister. End of story. Now, it's nothing you can work up. You cannot work up courage. You cannot work up peace. I don't care what. Only he can do that. <laughs> you got to feed on it, right? He never intended. He wants to be your courage by speaking his living word into you, and often he wishes to calm the raging circumstances with a word. His word obliterates obstacles and removes mountains. His words are your food, your inner man, Zoe life food. They are power-packed with him to give life, hope, and joy, and peace, and love, and understanding to your troubled soul, whether he changes the circumstances or not. Now, that, my friend, is life. That's living. Amen. That's what Jesus spent when he said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And he not only sustains the worlds with his words, he desires to be your sustainer too. So when his words penetrate into your soul and you spend time alone with him, then he will bring not only life but abundant life. And that's what God words do. That's what Jesus meant when he said, now we get it. Ha, huh. come to me. All, uh, let's read that together. Here, let's read it together. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Burden is what? You say, my burden is not light. No, because if your inner man is starving, it's going to be heavy. But if your inner man is being fed with his words speaking in because you're listening to him, and he, you allow him to speak to him, into your life, then you will find his burden light. Amen? Amen. We need... A whole army of dads who will teach and train and model this for their spouses and their children and their teens and their grown-up children. Listen to me, dads. If you get this one thing right in life, that you can hear the God who is not only around you but even in you, he will give you the strength and change your character. His power will change your character to be the kind of dad you need to be. And number two, if you can hear him and you will listen to him and spend time with him, he will guide you into how to lead 
your children. That is the greatest gift you will ever give your kids. The greatest gift you will ever give your kids. Hear him today. It's your birthright. It's your heritage. God is with you, and he wants to fellowship with you and feed you and guide you. Amen? Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves toward that end. Guide us, O King, in your service. Be our Father in our relationship. And then, Lord, we ask you to be our food as you speak to us and strengthen our inner life in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed by saying, Amen.